Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Confluence Cast presented by Columbus Underground. We are a weekly Columbus-centric podcast focusing on the civics, lifestyle, entertainment, and people of our city. I'm your host, Tim Fulton. This week, contemporary art and the presentation of it has traditionally been a class-based endeavor. The Wexner Center for the Arts is trying to change that through their programs and the type of work that they present. I spoke with Johanna Burton, the center's executive director, about what the Wexner Center is and how you should view it, how to convince people to expose themselves to the arts, the importance of being a multidisciplinary laboratory, and how they're pivoting in this time. You can get more information on what we discussed today in the show notes for this episode at theconfluencecast.com. Also, the Confluence Cast is on Patreon. Find out how to support this podcast on our website, theconfluencecast.com, or at patreon.com slash confluence. The Confluence Cast is sponsored this week by Art Makes Columbus, Columbus Makes Art, featuring stories about our city's incredible artists, stories full of inspiration, challenge, passion, and success. For videos, articles, an up-to-the-minute calendar of events, and an artist directory, visit columbusmakesart.com the resource for all things arts and culture in the capital city. Enjoy the interview. Sitting down here virtually with Johanna Burton, the executive director of the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University. Johanna, how are you? I'm great, Tim. How are you? Thank you so much for having me today. No, absolutely. First of all, for those that don't know who have been sitting under a rock for the past 30 years, Give sort of the the elevator pitch of what is the Wexner Center for the Arts. Well, everyone should know, but no. Yes. Just kidding. Um, no, the Wexner Center for the Arts is a multidisciplinary uh, art center. It is a non-collecting institution that's been around for 32 years. We were um, we opened our doors in 1989. Something that I often forget to say, but I want to make sure I say here is while other institutions, I think over that time have really become more multidisciplinary, have thought more about um, the the kind of intersection between and even transposition between disciplines. I think ours remains one of the the few, at least in America, that still thinks about these disciplines as equal um, and and also um, really kind of tries very hard to to bring them together in in discussions uh, around the disciplines, but also between the disciplines. And we are the only such um, entity on a university campus, which I I find really interesting um, because we are a laboratory and and follow that mandate. And just to give context for the audience, when you say the multiple disciplines, you are talking about uh, visual art, you're talking about performing arts, you're talking about film and video, uh, you're talking about public programs even. Well, so uh, it's great you say that. So I think we've always talked about ourselves as three arms, the ones that mm-hmm. you said, um, performing arts exhibitions and film video. We have changed, um, not surprisingly, given my background, what had been the education department is now learning and public practice, and it is considered a fourth and equal programming arm um, for, for the reasons that you 
started to slide into, I think. Um, it, education, I think, more and more is being understood as not the thing that explains what else is happening in a museum, but is an equal partner in producing ideas and, and really being able to animate audiences in ways that, um, that I think are increasingly important. So yes, so now we are a four-armed beast. Excellent. And talk about your background and what brought you to the WAX. Sure. So I um, was trained as an art historian uh, and sort of assumed I would um, teach and, and write, which I have done, um, but quickly realized that um, as much as I enjoyed uh, thinking historically and in the in the present, I also more than anything uh, wanted to work with living artists. Living artists are paving the way always and following their lead um, enables you to think about ideas before they even become fully codified, I think, in the culture. Um, so I found my, my way into some sort of hybrid uh, positions uh, in the, the last uh, that I was in prior to coming to the WEX was at the New Museum in New York, which is an institution that has a lot of affinities with the WEX, a similar history. It's um, a little bit older, um, but was uh, also really dedicated to living artists to the social kind of impact made by and on artists. And um, and there I was the Keith Haring Director of uh, Education and Public Engagement. And I both curated and did all the community outreach and, and public engagement. So I knew um, from that platform, which I was able to really um, kind of choreograph in certain ways over the seven years I was there, that I would love to do the same for a larger institution. And so when the job at the WEX came up, um, I, I jumped at the chance um, to, to come and, and lead the institution into its next era. Can you talk through sort of what priorities you bring? Into, your, your bio on the website makes it very clear that you're interested in talking about issues of diversity, interested in, I'm going to go ahead and say, leaning on art in order to facilitate discussions. And you talked about that in terms of what I think of from my past there as public programs. Talk about sort of the, the conversations that you're interested in having and the priorities that you have around that. Absolutely. Um, so my priorities are as somebody who, um, again, comes at uh, at artistic practice and, and artists as spaces for conversation to really think about the WEX maybe less as a, I mean, it is, it's a presenting institution, right? You come and mm -hmm. you see a film and you come and you see a performance, you come to exhibitions. But what's special about a place like the WEX, which is a non-collecting institution, um, the resources are really much more, I think, uh, for me at least, uh, uh, kind of interestingly, um, put towards the the artist in real time. So what does okay. it mean to commission somebody to um, to make something without knowing exactly what it is before you you commit to saying it's going to go on your walls? So I'm thinking, you know, we've, we've used the word laboratory for many years to describe the WEX. And how do you take that to its full conclusion and think about it through a kind of lens of eth ethics and equity, transparency, and really think about the museum as a place that, um, that goes sort of um, that, that changes its audience and is changed by its audience. So um, in the next few years, I think what we're aiming for is to really honor this idea of both education, we're on a, a college campus, um, but also laboratory in the sense that we're inviting artists in at various stages in their career to do things that maybe they wouldn't have the agency to do elsewhere. Um, and it's not so much about um, giving them license to fail, but more license to not have to know exactly what something will look like. So the aim, I think, um, and one of the reasons that I loved the WEX when I first heard about it, um, is to go back to a model where you invite an artist in and you commit to each other for six months or nine months or two years or whatever it takes. Um, and you invite the audience into that space 
um, I, a lot of people find contemporary art to be really um, kind of challenging and, and in many cases, I think, um, feel that it's not for them when in mm-hmm. fact, I think contemporary art is the most poised of, of any sort of era um, to be in discussion with um, with everybody. I mean, it really is about reflecting on on what's happening in the world. But to make that really clear, I think you have to pull the veils off and really ask people to to join in. So my priorities have a lot to do with um, really thinking about contemporary art as a space that generative and generous and welcoming um, at the same time as um, difficult. I'm not saying uh, that you you can't find yourself in a situation where you're uncomfortable. I think a lot of times people will be, um, but that there's a space for that and that it is um, really about learning and growing um, in, in, in a, a kind of joined and, and communal space. Yeah, I think a little bit here about in times that I've interviewed artists from the Wexer Center, specifically, I'm thinking about B.B. Miller yeah. and the the conversation for me, not with no dance background other than having written press releases about it trying to have a conversation about how should somebody who has not viewed contemporary dance before view it. And I'll link the conversation in the show notes. It's a, it's a wonderful conversation. And I, the other thing I think about is sort of coming down off the pedestal a little bit. Um, while it, the art world can be viewed from the outside as like, that's not for me because I am, I am just a person. I am just a person here functioning within my life. And if you come down and sort of offer up, this is how to take this in, or this is what it's related to, or this is what it's speaking to, you can grow those audiences. Right. No, BB is a great example. And I, I watched some of your, your discussion with her. And I had one with her not long ago um, with Anne Hamilton on a, on a similar um, a podcast that we've been doing. And, and it's a great, it's, I think what you're pointing to is really important, which is there are very specific technical um, ways that one can look at, say, dance. And that mm-hmm. is an audience that um, I think we also want to, you know, it's not like everybody should have the same um, skill set or vocabulary or language. But somebody like Bibi, what's so amazing about her, and, and she's a great person to point to, is she can speak that language of having gone through, you know, training. She's very well steeped in, in the kind of language and history of modernist um, and postmodernist dance. At the same time as she's talking about embodiment and um, and feeling and interrelationality, and you can, and sometimes actually, what's so wonderful is maybe that's where you enter and you think, oh my god, this is the thing I've been waiting for. And then you go further and you can access these other layers. So um, it, it's something that I'm always really hoping uh, is clear when I'm talking about accessibility is that doesn't mean everyone has the same experience. It mm-hmm. means that you can meet multiple experiences um, through practices that understand the world through um, a, a kind of multivocal lens. And I think that's where the multidisciplinarity is interesting. We shouldn't have four separate audiences. We can have audiences who may be really devoted to film video, but what if they then walk through the gallery um, while they're waiting for the film to start? And that's, I think, a really extraordinary and interesting way that we can become more accessible. But again, I think we st- we have work to do to convince mm-hmm. people that um, that we want they want we want them to come through our doors, um, and we want them to um, to have a moment of an unknowing that we can meet them um, meet them there. And this is the point in the episode where I say full disclosure: I used to work at the Wexner Center because uh, right. I I think I'm obligated to do that. Talk about 
how do you foster that, right? As the director, how do you foster these, frankly, silos? Yeah. From a curatorial standpoint, how do you foster uh, sort of that interdisciplinary work between those mediums? Uh, it's interesting. So we're starting to, I can't, I don't have an answer and we're working. Okay. I think what's interesting is I think it's more even of a structural um, approach than anything that has to do with the content. So um, for instance, this will seem like I'm not answering your question, but but I am. Um, when I began, the institution, like many, had um, had and still has a hierarchy, but I but I changed that from being a director and deputy director to more of a C-suite model, where there's a cabinet of both head, the top administrators and the and the department heads from each programmatic area, and the hope, right, is that we're all in these rooms talking about the institution as a whole, and then mm-hmm. that also becomes the way a way of working across departments. So. Um, interestingly, again, what we now call LPP, which was education, now is learning um, and public practice, headed by Dean Custer Edwards, uh, was naturally um, a kind of, uh, you know, one of those programs that did move between the other programs, which is why, ironically, it's often sidelined and not thought about as its own program, as it's an in- intentional interweaver. Well, we're trying to have more and more of those spaces um, where people are talking about their ideas, thematics arise. It's really challenging because people have been trained, and I don't mean at the WEX, I just mean in culture and in the world, to be really proprietary, to want to author things, to um, protect their resources. So siloing happens where um, even in an institution that's as porous and flexible as the WEX, you know, people worry, I think, more about what they're going to lose than what they gain. And I think we're shifting some of that through things like the change in how um, uh, the leadership C-suite works, but also things like, and we were talking about this before the episode, we're now doing trainings for all staff on how a budget is made, how philanthropy works, what an endowment is, how we pick our mm. board, um, how, how budgets are built. And, and we had to start doing that out of necessity when we had major budget cuts over the last year, as many museums have, so that there was, um, while there was bad news, there was also an understanding across the center. And I think that that translates, or I hope it translates, to things like programming also, um, when we're thinking about how to work maybe um, in different ways. And of course, capitalism has figured this out. You just read about the Zappos, how Zappos works, right? Everybody cross trains and everybody, you know, you can change um, and by the way, I say this some, somewhat ironically, but I also think it's interesting that we are the spaces of creative. We're supposed to be the spaces that model this behavior. And I think we're, we're very behind infrastructurally. Yeah. Well, and I think about sort of, you know, we are recording this virtually primarily yeah. because of the time that we're living in. Uh, and I think about how important it is to empower your people with information. Right. Like you said, there's bad news. Yeah. But here's why it feels like folks who are in higher up positions want to guard information rather than democratize it and let people know here's why the decisions that have been made have been made. And I just want to give you a little bit of kudos for doing that. So Uh, I mean, I appreciate people are still mad at me, of course. But well, yeah. um, (laughs) But I, I think what it is, is it's about, you know, asking for. And again, I think this is what's so interesting about this moment is we have to build a, a different kind of um, of institution. I mean, if you look around the, the nation right now, museums are not faring well. And I, I mean that both in terms of they're shutting um, people, uh, 
are, are very quickly realizing that the that the structures of um, of funding are really precarious, but mm-hmm. also people, you know, staffs and and institutional, um, you know, the kind of paradigms of how they're run are being questioned in really profound ways. And and you know, part of the reason that we again started to roll out this this model of engaging staff was because there was bad news, but also because there was good news, which is. Um, that cultural spaces can shift and transfigure and transform. And it's not just through the programming, it's through the way that you structure, um, you structure a staff and, and, and make sure that people feel like they are part of a mission and part of, um, part of an institutional mandate. Another part of that that's very big and we are hardly alone is we're really hoping um, to think through um, DEAI, diversity, equity, inclusion, um, you know, all of the, all of the, questions, accessibility uh, around not only who comes to your museum and who you serve, but what is the cultural space that you create um, in, in order to make that possible. And so I've been working very closely, um, you know, across staff, but uh, really with, again, I'll name Dion Custer Edwards, who's been doing a lot of this work um, for the 15 years that she's been at the WEX in a different position. And we're starting to assemble we have begun to assemble a small working group um, at the WEX of staff, um, a community thought partner group, and then we're working with um, with both sort of local and international um, partners who do this work because it, it feels like everything's an equity question, question um, down to you know how you interview people to uh, you know of course pay and and the kind of work that's done so. Um, I think there will be growing pains. I mean, I feel them myself. I've been dedicated to this work for my entire life, but I still feel like I'm, um, you know, daily reminded of my blind spots. But we've we've decided that this will be an institutional um, mandate and that hopefully, again, as we're moving forward, that will enable a platform that feels um, that feels like it's a good place to work from and also allows for artists maybe to work um, even with even more support. Uh, mm mm-hmm. And so being welcoming, not just to, I hate this term, non-traditional audiences, but being also open to non-traditional artists. Let's stop saying non-traditional. Let's say, let's say a more diverse audience, a more diverse group of artists, and a more diverse staff in order to bring in that, frankly, diversity of ideas. Right. And it's hard work. Because um, mm-hmm. I think, especially with a place like the OX, I want to give credit where credit is due to, to the, the years that preceded me. The programming has actually been um, ex- exemplary in really kind of showing um, and centering um, voices from from many different, um, you know, global, globally in terms of um, gender, in terms of race, in terms of sexuality, and these issues that are really pressing ones coming forward through the voices of, of artists. But... It also means that a lot of um, a lot of the the kind of pressure and the labor is placed on those artists instead of the institution and and the work often I think we're we're seeing this more and more with the debates that are going on right now. It's like well, if you just point to the artists that that you're that you've asked or that you've allowed or that you've asked, you know brought in to to do the work, you are you may not be doing the work yourself. And so I think that's mm-hmm. a, that's come up. It's um, and I'm not saying that there's been a terrible history of this at the WEX, but I think that all museums are realizing, you know, it's a it's a class based, it's a very class based profession that we're in, and we have to be thinking about what that means. I am not from a wealthy background. I come from a a very very I'll, I'll, I'll 
emphasize this very modest background um, in okay. rural Nevada. And yet I wanted to be part of the arts. And I, what I realized as I sort of began to make that journey was there was a skill set. And then there was also a lot about navigating class. And I think that, mm-hmm. that that is something that we continue. And it's not just class, of course. It's it's intersectional. It's class. It's race. It's gender. It's age. It's, it's sexuality. It's all the things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to your, your question about whether the doors are open um, and to, to whom, I think that's part of what we have to think about all the time. Mm-hmm. And you had talked about funding just a little bit, and I don't want to belabor the point, but I think it's important to note that while the Wexner Center is funded partially by The Ohio State University, well, first of all, the university is under financial strain, but also when you guys can't let people in the doors and can't charge tickets and can't hold a formal gala or anniversary celebration, whatever it's being called now, that hurts the bottom line as well, right? And so right. tough decisions need to be made. Yeah. And that you're you're not the city park. It's, you know, it's not by default just paid for. Right. Um, while, it, while I truly do believe it is a public good, it is not funded that way. Right. Well, and I think, you know, it's it's interesting. There's We could talk a lot about this. Um, wanting this space, which is on a campus and is part of a, a higher, an institution of higher education, wanting it to actually feel like public space. Well, to your point, there are these barriers. I don't think the biggest barriers are our costs, although frankly, those are the ones I'd love to erase first. Um, mm-hmm. and we've been talking about what it would, I've, there's no, I'm certainly not making promises here, but trying to be less cost prohibitive. In an ideal world, we everything would be free. And there are places for, for which this actually is a good business proposition. I've been looking at museums who have gone free and their their membership numbers go up because people mm-hmm. feel more committed. They don't feel like this is a transactional space. Um, but but that's just one access point. But it is true. I think there are presumptions about our funding, which are, you know, again, we are part of um, of OSU, which is, I think, a, a really wonderful and uh, and I'm excited. It's one of the reasons I wanted to come. Thing, but um, but but no, not all of our not all of our costs are covered. I can say that for sure. Um, and you know, I learned this in, in a funny way. I worked for a director at, a, at another museum, and um, we were talking about fun- fundraising when I sort of was early on in the game. And she said, "You know, Johanna, m- museums are businesses." And I got really, I was, it made me really upset. I, I said, hmm. "They're not. They're not. They're not businesses. They're." for the public good, they're public spaces, they're about public discourse. And they are those things. But at the end of the day, you actually do have to have the money to raise them and to pay your people and to get get the work done. And so it's an interesting proposition to both be a kind of public space and a, and a um, and an entity that, that has to run um, on this other model. I talk a lot about how I wish that museums could make the pivot that libraries have made in terms of um, being these functional spaces that I think at one time people questioned the longevity of libraries, like mm-hmm. you know how we aren't going to need books and people go there and it's all about this sort of again higher idea of knowledge. They are fully public spaces. People use them for everything. They have um, generated across I think the entire country a, a, a kind of you know they're they're not all the same, but they operate to welcome people in and um, people may never read a book but go there every day. Um, so I, I think that there's work to be done on that front. 
I want to pivot just a little bit into what's currently happening at the WAX. Yeah. I want to talk about the collaboration you guys are doing with WOSU, specifically about the current uh, exhibition that's up, Climate Changing. Sure. So I'll give it... I'll, I'll make that your choice for which which path to go down first. You're both good. I'd be happy to speak about either. So when I came to Columbus, um, I had, of course, always known about Anne Hamilton. She was um, mm-hmm. an, an artist who I admired and who I, I feel great affinity with. We've become good friends. Um, and she, uh, we started having conversations about really sort of as the pandemic, um, you know, dawned and hit. And then uh, as all of the, you know, episodes of, of uh, radically racially oppressive violence were, um, were hinging into that and also making really clear that, that history. We decided we just wanted to start talking about how art could still be being made right now and how for some it's very difficult, for some it's it provided a different kind of context and a different kind of urgency. And that in a way the argument is just that art is more essential than ever, even if in a sense it's more imperiled, at least in terms of, of financial stability. Mm-hmm. And so we started inviting people that um, had a, you know, there are various kind of ways in which they're linked to the Wex, but some relationship to the Wexner and to, to this place, to Columbus. And so we have talked with B.B. Miller, who is um, this brilliant choreographer who of course has a, an international reputation, but chooses to live and work and teach here. She did. Mm-hmm. Um, to Anne Bogart, who did an amazing project here, um, which, and she's good friends um, with Anne. And actually, Anne invited Deborah Winger, who she's worked with, to do an mm. episode, which is um, really terrific. We spoke with Dina Hagog, who runs a, a very important um, funding, um, a foundation that funds artists directly. Um, we are speaking this week with Sharon Udo, who is a total mm. of, of Columbus. We've spoken with Mark Lomax. Um, and, and, and Sharon, by the way, for our audience, is Counterfeit Madison. Yes. And, and what's come of those discussions in a way has been, it, it's maybe, it has, was a little greedy of us. We just wanted to sit and, and talk with people for whom um, there was a kind of shared desire to think about about art in the midst of what's happening and not instead of what's happening but as mm-hmm. what's happening and so those discussions were um co-produced with WOSU who's a one of my favorite um OSU neighbors and they're going to be even closer to us and the hopes um there are that we'll we'll end up doing more I mean we've always done collaborations with them but they're they're just an amazing team and uh I think we're just going to wrap we're wrapping up that season and and that may be the only one that we do but um but it's been great and then uh I'm very excited about uh climate changing it's a show Mm -hmm. that just opened at the WEX um earlier uh just a few weeks ago by Lucy Zimmerman, who is an associate curator at the WEX. The title of the show is Climate Changing on uh, Artists, Institutions, and the Social Environment. Um, And you can imagine how many different titles um, were thrown around. But uh, what Lucy really wanted to be thinking about, and and this was well before um, any of the events of the last year, was um, a kind of new modality of institutional critique that artists are, are, are really engaged in where, you know, they're taking cues from artists like Chris Burden, who you'll see the facade um, is of the Wex has been anointed with a piece that he first did at the Wex 30 years ago as one of the first shows, part of one of the first mm-hmm. shows. 
Chris is Chris Burden is has passed away and is one of the only artists in the show that isn't working is the only artist who isn't working today. But taking up some of those questions from that had sort of percolated in the 60s, 70s and beyond about, um, you know, really taking institutions to task, but then thinking um, even more deeply about the kind of um, empathic and um, emotional and embodied parts of those questions. And also, I think, making a call for um, a kind of collective future um, making and thinking. What's different about this generation of artists is that I think they're calling for and even demanding something else rather than maybe just um, taking apart and dismantling. I love institutional critique for the record. It's a sweet spot um, okay. uh, historically. But I think that there's, there is something really exhilarating about what these artists are doing. They're looking at ableism. They're thinking about... Um, uh, you know, race and gender and these entwined in really interesting ways. And they're, I think, insisting on um, on really thinking about, again, placemaking within the museum as a way to consider the larger world. Um, and so it's very inspirational, I think, in many ways. And there, there's a kind of poetics to a lot of what happens. So if you come to the WEX, it's a group show with um, about 20 artists, three of whom are collectives. Mm -hmm. And again, it ranges from, um, you know, artists who are thinking about, um, you know, how you actually enter the building. If you uh, need a wheelchair, um, what does it mean to um, actually, uh, you know, come in and intersect with um, the architecture in a way that calls attention to both how it how it um, how it holds art, but also how it holds our bodies. Um, and mm -hmm. I think. Uh, what's also spectacular about it is it's um, it's very beautiful and you can spend a lot of hours in it, um, but it asks hard, interesting questions. And we, speaking of, of accessibility, um, are really, really thrilled that AEP has partnered with us. So we have free Sundays now, so you can come um, for free to the WEX every Sunday now, um, which is the beginning of what I hope will be, you know, again, a bigger, a bigger step in that direction. Absolutely. Can you talk about, I, I would be remiss if I didn't bring up sort of what it was like to make the decision to reopen that and also what a patron experiences in the line of COVID-19 when yeah. they're there. Yeah. So we, it's a great question because there's, you have to weigh, right? How, how essential is it to actually have your doors open um, and with safety and been lucky again to work with staff um, who came together around a, a task, a reopening. They became a reopening closing task force because we've had to do it a few different times mm -hmm. um, and, and we're under the umbrella of OSU, but we've also been allowed to think about ourselves as partially public too. You know, we're public facing as well as serving students. So, and, and, um, so we reopened when we first closed, um, it was, uh, we were closed for quite a long time. And then we reopened briefly so that our fall shows, which were um, specifically uh, addressing the election. So it was a suite mm -hmm. of shows that we had, people had to see them as, as the run up to, to the election happened. And then we reclosed when the numbers went higher. When this show, um, it's interesting, it's, it's, less even the decision to reopen than were we going to install a, a big show that we could maybe never open the doors for. Mm. Um, we all made a decision. Lucy's show had been pushed off actually for nearly a year because of the first, it was meant to open. Um, and to be clear, this show that is currently open was meant to be in 2019. Excuse me, 2020. And, um, and so, you know, there came a moment where we pushed it off and thought, 
it, now is the time where we have to decide whether we install this show. And mm-hmm. we worked with, Lucy had worked with um, many of these artists, almost half of them had new commissions. And the other, the other work was still very, um, you know, specific to the show. And we felt it was worth actually seeing that through. And we started having, you know, discussions about, well, if we can't open the doors, we can do virtual walkthroughs. We can um, figure out ways to, to engage the work. And the, the good news was um, we had, have a very, very good um, safety protocol within the building for um, our staff that said, you know, it, there, it wasn't without anxiety. I think, um, you know, clearly there are, again, to talk about equity, you've got some folks who don't have to go in to do anything at all when an institution or when an uh, exhibition is being installed, myself included. And then you've got um, folks on the on the prep team who need to be there. So mm-hmm. there were real discussions about comfort and about how to um, have small pods working, how the front desk, the, the, our amazing visitor experience team um, would feel safest. And uh, we managed to get it done. So when you go there now, um, there's a lot of Purell. There's a, you're not, <laughs> nobody's going to uh, ask you to go beyond the, the kind of plexi screen that is between you and the person who's giving tickets. Um, and I think, you know, even down, we have a, we have a virtual reality headset that you have to wear for, for one of our artists, um, uh, pieces and uh, it's we've got a guard who's got like this tremendous amount um, of like Purell and wipes so that after every time somebody uses the you know the virtual reality headset it gets it gets clean mm. so people have been extraordinarily grateful um, to be able to come into the space um, and actually be with each other and be with art that said we haven't slowed down at all in the other programming areas so um though it's a shame not to be able to go to a film together or to go to a performance together, or attend an education workshop together. Um, we have probably been programming as much, if not more than before. Um, and uh, it, it, the numbers interestingly are, are really good. And also if there's a silver lining, we're actually seeing people um, from all over the world watching mm-hmm. our programs. We had um, Ohio shorts, which you'll remember is normally um you know, we have a full house. It's it's 300 people in the in the theater, but uh, the numbers of people who watched during the the time that it was actually online were it was tremendous. It was thousands of people from from virtually every state in the United States and and globally as well. So there have been some really kind of silver again silver linings um, about mm-hmm. virtual as well. And we're learning from that so that when we come back, we can maybe. Um, utilize utilize that tool moving forward because nothing's going to be the same. We're not going back to a normal. Uh, right. This is the new normal. This is the new normal. Well, and I was my follow up to that, and I think you answered it was how, you know when you get to that new normal, let's call it the fall. Um, do you think you'll still be engaging and investing, frankly, in uh, virtual programming? Yes, the answer is yes. I actually think. Um, as amazing as our sort of buckets are um, with the you know film video and performing arts and exhibitions and learning and public practice, something that the WEX hasn't really addressed is technology. And I think that's something that is on the horizon for us. It may mm-hmm. not be its own bucket, but it certainly needs to be a tool. And mm-hmm. I think um, that tool is one employed by artists, employed by audiences in a way that um, this has jump-started the conversation in a particular way. So. Yeah, I, and I'm actually very excited because I think technology is something that the WEX could address very well. So ironically, one one of our first steps in um, in really kind of leaning into technology for the next era is 
Um, the WEX has been so focused on the future that it hasn't really actually addressed its own past. And so we are, um, again, ironically, as we as we aim for the future, we're going to hire an archivist. We're in the middle of this now so that we can build a digital archive that actually tells the story of the center um, and really kind of gives um, a history um, for all of this this work. So technology and the past coming together in a really interesting way, I think. That's fantastic. I am personally very excited about that. The things that sort of step out to me during this conversation, I think it's almost a little dangerous to use this word when you think about an institution, but um, there is an intersectionality there, right? It is. It has multiple characteristics that have to be taken as a whole right. in order to understand it. And I also think about the duality between being a public space and being a private institution and an institution that's connected to a land-grant university. Right. Is there anything else that you would want the audience to know sort of about viewing the Wexner Center holistically? Yeah, I mean, it's actually, I think, a challenge that we're, um, we're trying to figure out right now, which is we do so many things that I think sometimes people aren't sure exactly what we are. And mm-hmm. so I think the articulation of, of the WEX as a space that um, where maybe we're not defined by these buckets, but we do them very, very well is important. Um, again, institutions, I think, globally caught up with the WEX at a certain point and started talking about multidisciplinarity um, in a way that that makes us seem maybe less unique than we are. So I think um, in terms of telling our story, it really is um, about uh, utilizing this space. I, I'm going to start using the word transdisciplinary rather than multidisciplinary because I think artists themselves are are less beholden or interested in holding those buckets apart. Mm-hmm. But how we use those tools um, to tell stories about about the world and about ourselves and Um, I do, again, think that what's on the horizon is figuring out how that process piece of what we do um, really is unique and it really invites people in um, and allows it to be a discursive, generative social space, unlike um, many others. Um, And again, I think telling the story moving forward, we have maybe not been as invested in talking about our our place on campus on a space of learning. And I actually really think that that's something that differentiates us. And I want I want to um, continue to to talk about. So I'm not mm-hmm. sure if that answers your question. But Absolutely, you- it does. I just want to wrap up by asking sort of what are your now that you've you're a Columbusite now? What do you think? I love it. I'm really happy here. I, as you know, I spent, um, you know, my entire professional life in New York City. But I came from a place that's very different from Columbus, but I think has an affinity. You know, we um, there's a there's a kind of uh, fierce loyalty to this city that I find really mm-hmm. interesting, and a kind of civic engagement around um, at least around the arts that I have found really moving. You know, often I think um, that kind of pride has to do with um, I don't know. It's it's a big enough city to to have a kind of texture but it's also small enough to have real community i'm i'm mm-hmm. from reno which is the biggest little city in the world and sometimes i mm-hmm. think this is there's something similar about it i've also felt really fortunate to meet an just incredible people in a short time who want me and the wex to succeed and that has felt um very um humbling but also um like i like i landed in the right place and then ironically the ha- we found a house that chose us. Um, so when we 
moved here. Uh, I'm a real nester. And I said, you know, where, where are the modernist houses? And we ended up living in this iconic roundhouse in Rush Creek where, um, you know, I don't know if you, if folks know Rush Creek, but it is a, um, a very unusual, it's one of the only existing Usonian architecture communities in the United States built by an acolyte of Frank Lloyd Wright. And, uh, so we ended up in this this crazy house that I'm just I feel really lucky to wake up in every day. That's round. Fantastic. Johanna, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Tim. I really enjoyed it. I hope we'll chat again one of these days. Thank you for listening to the Confluence Cast presented by Columbus Underground. Again, you can get more information on what we discussed today in the show notes for this episode at theconfluencecast.com. Please rate, subscribe, share this episode of the Confluence Cast with your friends, family, contacts, enemies, your favorite contemporary artist. If you're interested in sponsoring the Confluence Cast, get in touch with us. We can be reached by email at info at theconfluencecast.com. Our theme music was composed by Benji Robinson. Our producer is Philip Cogley. I'm your host, Tim Fulton. Have a great week.